happy Saturday. It's October 8th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. We're bringing it on an October morning. Hi, Ashley. Michael, these may be end days. Between Putin and the nukes, it could be sheer catastrophe, so we might as well have fun today while we still can. Wow, I didn't even have my coffee and you're already dropping the A-bomb on me. Cool. All right. Wide awake, coming at you. Yeah, we've got a great show this week. We've got James Kerchick on the new Trump book. We've got Stuart Heritage in London on Liz Truss's mess in the UK and the world and you could and the financial markets. And we've got Linda Wells asking, is the world ready for a wokeified Victoria's Secret? So plenty of great things coming at us, but I'm, I'm sure you've got other th- more important things on your mind, like maybe Harry and Meghan's battle with Netflix or... I don't know what else, whatever, whatever else is bubbling in your brain. Well, I had dinner with a group of girlfriends last night, Michael, and it was very funny to watch them get all up in arms about Liz Trust. They were so outraged that this was our representation of the UK to the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, ladies, take a seat, okay? We had Trump for four years. I'm used to this. She looks, if not innocuous, certainly an improvement over that guy. So it's tragic and sad, but it is also just a touch humorous to see the rest of the world have to deal with a little bit of the shame and humiliation that we Americans felt when Trump was in office. You know, they just came out with this Kenneth Branagh film as Boris Johnson, which has gotten middling reviews. But you want to know my title for the Liz Truss biodoc, biofilm that comes out imminently? You can't trust this? Could be. How about this? How to lose a country in 30 days. Ouch. But does that mean we get Boris back? See, I mean... Well, that's what we're going to have Stuart Heritage tell us when we get him on here a little bit. Enough with me and my cocktail party chatter. Let's get the real expert on. The one that only Stu Heritage, a journalist here in London, writes a lot for The Guardian, writes even more for airmail, dare I say. He's really ours. Sorry. Uh, Welcome, Stu Heritage. Stu, I'd like to start our conversation with my condolences for your loss of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Um, It's all right. It's been a month now. You know, we've got a new king. It's fine. I guess. <laughs> well, now that the black armbands are off, let's just get back into the fray with your incredible story this week. I, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but the headline is heaven on earth. Hashtag trust or fuck. We've got a new prime minister here in the UK. Her name is Liz Truss. She is a hot mess. Tell us why. Well, let's put it this way. We've had we've had a conservative government in this country for 12 years at this point. And it started with a guy that everybody wanted because they elected him. And then sort of as consecutive administrations, conservative administrations have come in, it seems like they take the top tier of most qualified people with them. And so now we're left with the fourth conservative government in in 12 years. And it's just, it's literally a bunch of people that no one's ever heard of, led by Liz Truss, who was, it's, it's sort of one of those figures who sort of existed like people kind of knew who she was but not really what for um and because of this sort of crazed leadership competition that's been going on since uh, boris johnson was ousted she's kind of risen to the top i think because no one really knows very much about her she she was just the least immediately sort of hard to form opinions about i guess and now she's got the job and it's it seems quite clear she doesn't really know what she's doing as you note in your story boris was pushed out So the Conservative Party members got together. They had to find a new person to take the job. But as you note, essentially, your country is being led by a woman who was chosen by only 80,000 people, right? Yeah. And it's like, look, they looked around and were like, well, you've got the job, right? And yet, here we are. 
That's pretty much it. And also in a normal general election, you have to put yourself out to the the entire British public. But here she was kind of, she was really just gunning for the wing nuts, really, the kind of very right wing people who exist, well, who, who are conservative members. She's sort of the perfect candidate for them because she's very much into cutting taxes and cutting benefits and the rich gets richer. But as soon as she sort of stepped out in front of the country, all of it, apart from 80,000 80, people, just sort of went, what? What are you doing? This doesn't speak for us at all. And it kind of tragically or hilariously either resulted in just this enormous mess. The markets have fallen. The Bank of England have had to step in to kind of cut off this enormous uh, inflation. Her approval rating has sunk to such a degree that uh, the opposition party has the largest lead of any party in the last 20 years. It's catastrophic for her, really. Now, Stu, as bad as Liz is, she can't create all of this sheer chaos and destruction alone. She has a partner in, I don't know if crime is the right word. Tell <laughs> us about her chancellor, Quasi Quartang. First of all, there's been a lot of buzz around Westminster about the nature of their relationship. Those two are very close. I'll leave it to you to interpret that. Can you tell us about the nature of their relationship? Legally, I don't know how much, because there was a redacted list of problematic Tory MPs that went around about five years ago. It was called the Dirty Dossier. And an unredacted version of it made its way onto social media. It claimed that uh, Liz Truss and uh, Kwesi Kwarteng had some sort of extramarital affair at some point. I don't know if it's true or not. They were certainly neighbours. They're very, very closely politically aligned. So who knows? It's all just wild gossip and speculation. And I wouldn't like to say one way or the other. Okay, fair enough. Well, we'll do the gossiping and speculating for you, Stu. Thank you. In the meantime, Paul Krugman from the New York Times referred to her fiscal policies as, quote, deeply stupid. But she did reverse course on one unpopular measure. What was that? And what do you think propelled that action? The sort of the keynote thing that they did is that once they got the, once they got into power, was they cut the top rate of tax, which was for people earning over £150,000 a year. Previously, it had been uh, 45 pence was the tax band. They decided to cut that down to 40 pence, which is effectively means that if you earn a million pounds a year, you get an extra £40,000 a year. But then and it, it caused an in, just a catastrophe. There were very rich people saying, don't do this, like we would rather pay and live in a society that functions. The sort of people on the lower end of lower end of the salary bands were i think justifiably annoyed it kind of it dominated the uh, the headlines for about a week this is my favorite part uh, liz trust did a bunch of interviews saying that she was not going to reverse uh, her policies the the tax cut was always going to happen completely and then that was in the newspapers uh, for the first editions by the second editions it got out that it absolutely wasn't going to happen and she was reversing her her plan. Personally, I think it's she is the worst prime minister we've ever had. But then I've said that of the last, you know, six. So maybe I'm just old and nostalgic. Who knows? Sue, do you see a universe in which Boris ends up back at number ten? Uh, um, yes, yeah, I do. He's the he's the party favourite. I think there's there's a lot of buyer's remorse going on. People got rid of him because of his um his personal failings, basically the parties that he was having throughout lockdown. But at the same time, he did sort of have a, I guess, in retrospect, charismatic leadership. He was a, he was a figurehead that people could 
get behind one way or the other in a, in a way that Liz Trust simply isn't. And the, uh, there are lots of, um, you know, betting websites here. I was just going to ask, like, so so what's Ladbrokes saying? Like, I mean, what's Ladbrokes saying and what's Stuart Heritage saying? Like, what is her future? How long do, we, do you give her? How long do the betting sites give her? Well, Lad- Ladbrokes is saying it has, like, the, the next prime minister as a, as a betting category. By far, the, the favourite is Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition. After that, it's Boris Johnson. But to say it's Keir Starmer, would it, that assumes that she's going to have a job for three years, that she's going to ride out this mess and not get thrown out by her own party, which they're very good at doing. If, if that happens with Liz Truss, it'll be the fourth consecutive prime minister that the Conservative Party have got rid of on their own. And she's doing such a bad job. I don't think she'll last for three years. So I do kind of, part of me is is braced for the return of Boris. Rishi Sunak, any future there? I mean, in retrospect, he's look, he looks like a genius. Every, every single thing he said that Liz Truss would do has happened. All the unfunded tax cuts and, and the way that the market has responded so sort of catastrophically. Well, Stu, more to be continued for sure. Oh, fun. <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful story and for joining us. And we can't wait to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, dude. Take care. I always love Stuart's insights. And it's sort of, you know, Liz's problems or challenges, uh, many of her own making, seem to lead quite naturally to two things. One is our next guest, Jamie Kirchick, who has spent the last few days immersed in the political profile book that everyone's dying to read right now, which is Maggie Haberman's book, The Confidence Man. Uh, Maggie, of course, the New York Times reporter who broke many of the scoops during Trump's presidency. Before we get to that, Ashley, you know, you've mentioned that Liz Truss has some interesting dating history and uh, as does Trump, but do you want to touch at all on the new right-wing dating app? that has bubbled up. I think this is pretty interesting. I love this story. Well, when we first heard word of this, I got really excited about it because, hey, I love dating apps because it's a very valuable window into the way that people live and what they value. So when we first got word of the Right Stuff dating app, I paid extra close attention. This is a new product created by a woman named Ryan McEnany. She is the sister of Trump's former press secretary, Kaylee McEnany. You might, well, you'll probably remember her from those days, although I did try to forget. And it's very funny because this app is intends to bring like-minded people together. And by like-minded, we mean Trump supporters, but you know, those on the right wing in general. Yes, I think it would fall under the uh, simple directions of swipe far right. LOL. Great headline. The website says other dating apps have gone woke. We bring people together with shared values and similar passions. Uh, Michael, it's safe to say you and I would not meet a soulmate on this app, but plenty of people have been talking about it. So we sent, who else? Kat Rosenfield, uh, one of our most contrarian, delightful writers, to investigate this dating app. Try it out. See how it works. And boy, what a tangled web she weaves. Yeah. And as I said, it seems like a, a good segue into our next guest, James Kerchick, who's spent the last few days immersed in the hot book of the week, uh, much anticipated Maggie Haberman book, The Confidence Man about Donald Trump. He's here to share us with us what he's discovered within those 600 pages. Okay. James Kerchick is a contributing writer for Airmail, and we are thrilled to have him here. Welcome, James. Jamie, first of all, how long is this book? About 500 pages. So it's it's shorter than my book, which also had 150 pages of endnotes, if I could add that. But it's a long book, but it actually reads quite 
uh, briskly. First of all, did you enjoy it? I enjoyed this book a lot, which I was somewhat surprised by, only because I'm sort of sick of hearing about Donald Trump. I have not read any of the you know voluminous number of books that have come out about him since he started running for president, really. There's just been a glut of these books. But this one I made an exception for when my, when my airmail editor assigned it to me because I figured there's no one better to write a biography of Donald Trump than Maggie Haberman. Also, this is a biography which I think is different than most of the other books that have been written about Trump in that they are sort of presidential administration kind of tell-alls, right? Sort of, you know, the day-by-day chaos of the Trump administration. This is a, a proper biography that begins with his, you know, childhood. Um, and it's written by Maggie Haberman, who's the sort of lead Trump reporter at the New York Times. And she's sort of the perfect person to write this book because she got her start in journalism working in the New York City tabloids. You know, she worked at the New York Post and the New York Daily News beginning in the the late 90s, early 2000s. So she kind of rose up through that same kind of New York tabloid culture. What sticks out for you that that sort of eye openers or sort of um, insights that you had not seen before? What this book did really for me was kind of confirm what I'd always believed about Trump in terms of his motivation. But for me, what really struck a chord and what I'd always kind of suspected is that, you know, the real reason Donald Trump ran for president and the reason he continues to be such a menace is simply because he wants to be a star. He wants to be the center of attention. He has this bottomless pit of need for adulation. Um, It's this kind of world historical vanity that can only be satiated by being president of the United States. And that is really, I guess, if there's a thesis to this book, it's that. And I think there's really not much editorializing in this book. She's not advancing arguments. It's really just kind of like like a notebook dump. It's like, here I've been, I'm this reporter who's been covering Trump for for so long. You know, I've I've talked to him constantly. I have, I'm better source than anyone else on the kind of Trump beat. And this is what, this is what just repeatedly comes through in this book is that this is a guy who's just wants to be at the tip of everyone's tongue. And here we are on this podcast. And what are we doing? We're talking about, we're talking about Donald Trump. So as you note, I mean, I think that seems to be the, the, the power of this, of, of Haberman's. She, she gets these very concrete examples and you cite two of them. One, which I just love you to talk about, which is what happens when he's touring the Republican National Convention inside the Louisiana Superdome in 1988. And then later, his insight about what it's like to be able to get a table or not get a table at a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> One is sort of the beginning, you know, sort of this is 1988. Trump is kind of toying with the idea of maybe running for president. And he's brought to the Republican National Convention by Roger Stone, whom really is, I, I would say, Haberman really establishes him as being the main influence in Donald Trump's kind of political life. It's not Vladimir Putin. It's not even Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was was very influential in many ways, but just in really terms of kind of shaping Donald Trump as a political figure, it is Roger Stone, the, you know, Nixon dirty trickster, just, you know, just kind of really rancid political, political figure. And Roger Stone is bringing him through the Louisiana Superdome, and Trump is just, it's incredible to him. And Haberman describes it as, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a sporting event, but for one man. You know, like there's not a team. <laughs> it's not like 11 football players on the field. It's all for one guy. And you can, you can, I mean, she writes about it in this very cinematic way. You can just, you can see him. He's standing there in the middle of this, you know, football field that's been converted into a political convention. And he's just looking around at the crowds. And he says, this is what I want. And so that's kind of where it begins. And then there's an interview at the end that she writes about. It's in the epilogue of her book. 
It's one of three interviews that she conducted specifically for this book. And she's sort of, you know, she's kind of explaining to him what her book's going to be about. It's going to be, and it's going to be connecting his New York life to his Washington political life. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth, where he's sort of trying to maybe offer her an example, you know, to kind of illustrate how these two lives are connected, right? His life as a New York media figure slash real estate celebrity, and then being president of the United States. The first thing out of his mouth is, yeah, I had this really rich friend who wanted a table at a restaurant, and he called me, and I was able to get him the table because I'm famous. And that's really what this is about, right? That's, that's why he ran for president was the fame. You know, it was to get an effing table at a restaurant. I mean, this is a book that I think will really stand the test of time. I think you could read this in, you know, years from now, decades from now, if you want to understand who Donald Trump, you know, was and, and what, what made him. As for his political future, that's, that's left to, you know, the prognosticators. The pro- it's left to the prognosticators and the hand ringers. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jamie, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for your wonderful story. And don't forget to read Jamie's great new book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Okay, can we move on to something a little lighter? I mean, we just touched a moment it's moments ago about the dating app for the far right. And, you know, every business seems to be responding to trends in, in, in the society and culture. And here we are, strangest of all, maybe this week, is a story from Linda Wells, our uh, beauty and wellness columnist, about the what is it, Ashley? The wokeification of Victoria's Secret? If any brand should have been canceled in the past years, it would be Victoria's Secret. You know, its CEO was a Jeffrey Epstein intimate. Ed Razek, one of its main executives, has a very checkered past when it comes to treatment of women and employees. And it turns out that the company is still around and kicking, even though uh, there's a totally new executive team in the C-suite. And they have to figure out some way to move forward. And they've chosen a new ad campaign. And Linda Wells is here to tell us all about Victoria's Secret's somewhat pathetic attempts to rebrand itself for 2022 and beyond. Linda Wells was the founding editor of Allure, a position she held for 25 years. And now she is our beauty and wellness and kind of all things guru here at Airmail. Welcome, Linda. Okay, Linda, Victoria's Secret, my goodness. Tell us exactly what they're trying to do here. Is redemption possible? This is a really meta question to start with. I think it's really a hard question to answer, too, because the sins of Victoria's Secret are so enormous. I mean, it it isn't just a cultural issue. It's a behavioral issue. It's so rampant. The misbehavior on the top executives part, the way they treated people internally, the way they treated the models, what they proposed in terms of an image and a concept of what femininity is and what women should look like. It's just on all levels, it was just so completely wrong and so pervasive that it's a hard thing. It almost feels questionable. It almost, it's for sort of worse than questionable, the fact that they're trying to redo this. It just doesn't feel genuine. So that's the hard part. And then again, maybe they can. Maybe they really are. I mean, they've made deep changes in the corporation. So now six out of the seven members of the board of directors are women. Um, they've got women leaders in the executive team. And then they also have um, changed the sizing. So they were known for very limited sizing and really appealing to the skinniest possible body type. And now they've got a huge range of sizes. And so that makes 
the whole thing seem more possible than I think it was just window dressing. So Linda, Victoria's Secret was known for the push-up bra. They were known for the thong. It was all bedazzled. It was all about sexy. Has the product assortment changed at all, or are they still hawking the same old stuff? They have changed the product assortment. They have maternity bras, which, you know, they didn't used to have any of that because the executives thought that wasn't sexy. You know, they do still have push-up bras, and they still have all the crazy colors and the, you know, but they used to, they had, there was this line called pink, and it was directed toward teenage girls and it had message clothes and we all saw kids walking on the street with pink on their butts you know and they're like sweatpants but they had these message clothes that said things like call me on the crotch of a thong now that just seems a little off to me so they've gotten rid of that they have still have the pink line but it's more wholesome the Victoria's Secret line does have the thong but you know Lots of people make thongs, and there's nothing wrong with a thong. They look really good under pants. You don't get the panty line. So, and no one's against necessarily push-up bras. Some people really like them. Not that they're comfortable, but they're made by everybody. So I don't think that the, those in themselves are offensive, and they still have them. But they also have all these alternative products. Do you think there's a future for Victoria's Secret? Is this campaign the start of it? You know, I do think it's possible, and I and I don't say that in support of anything that Victoria's Secret has done in the past. But I do think that they do have real estate and they have a presence in malls. And if malls still exist as a, you know, as a place for people to gather and to shop, then I think that they do have a chance. And, you know, the prices are low and there's a lot to say for them. Skims is really definitely the more favored brand in terms of love on on social media. But Victoria's Secret still holds a very big market share. So it's a question mark. I think there are women who are going to come and they're not going to know the history of the angels and they're not going to know all that terrible sort of thing. So if they can last through the next group of women, they might be able to redefine themselves. What's interesting to me too is in this new ad, um, it's not just that they have this wide array of women, which is terrific, but they also have um, everyone's wearing either black or white. It's very somber in terms of what they're wearing. And it doesn't feel Victoria's Secret at all. It feels like such a departure from what they were known for. And I think that you can swing too far the other way. And that would be my one statement about their taste that has gone so, so extremely apart from what people turn to Victoria's Secret for, which is a kind of you know, to put a nice spin on it, maybe a fun, colorful, flamboyant approach to something that could be very boring, you know, underwear. So they can do the wrong thing by being too severe and too modest and kind of boring. So we're not going to see shows with the angels anymore. Oh, thank God. No, those are terrible right from the day one. Did you ever go to one, Michael? I can honestly say no, I didn't. Oh, I didn't either. I still have PTSD. I thought I could have Bahati Prince loose abs. I really thought that was achievable for me. It wasn't. It never was. They were really awful experiences. It just made you doubt yourself and your idea of reality. I'm sorry to say. The thing is, I went to fashion shows, you know, thousands of fashion shows over, you know, 25, 30 years, and none of them felt personal. You know, you'd look at them and you'd say, that's a different species, and the clothes are, you know, th this is not personalized. I'm not you know, I'm not measuring myself against anybody on the runway because it was just too far-fetched. But somehow Victoria's Secret really felt more, even though it was so circus-like and over the top, it also felt like it was selling something that was so inexpensive and so available to everybody that there was a, a insidiousness to it that felt more real. 
I think you just nailed it because we actually bought that stuff. You know, I grew up in the 90s in the Midwest. I'm sorry to say, I think that was my first bra. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, if you shopped at a mall, you went to Victoria's Secret. That's what you did. And that's not really a New York City phenomenon, but it was a big phenomenon if you live in the Midwest, as I did too. Yeah. But while we have you, Linda, and while you're, you're, you're mentioning fashion shows, they just concluded in, in Milan and Paris. Just would love to get your thoughts on any show that stood out for you. Oh, I love The Row. I think The Row is so good. There's a newer designer named Peter Doe that... I love his clothes. I now I'm looking at fashion much more personally than I used to. So, you know, I'm not looking at it as, well, what are we going to photograph on the runway? But I thought those were two really strong, terrific shows. And I could have been very happy having one of each. You know, you can't go wrong with Gucci. I, I think that the twin idea was really fun. And, you know, who doesn't love a Chanel moment? Speaking of Chanel, then I got to get both your takes on, I don't know if you saw the news that broke a little bit ago, is that... Jared Leto, who obviously disappeared into the Adam Newman character in We Crashed, he will now star as Karl Lagerfeld in a biopic that's being produced with the full support of the Lagerfeld estate. How do we feel? I think it's great. I mean, that's a good story. Karl Lagerfeld had a really interesting childhood. I think some of it was mythologized or self-mythologized, but I think this is a good story. And who knew Jared Leto was going to be the fashion person in every movie? From the Gucci movie, The House of Gucci, where he played Aldo Gucci in a crazy, was he in a fat suit or a crazy bald head or something like that? And then um, it'll be interesting to see his transformation into Karl Lagerfeld. But Karl Lagerfeld's a really colorful character and lived through a lot of eras. And I think that that's going to be fantastic. One more to look forward to, in addition to Linda's next column. (laughs) Thank you. Between Jared Leto and the next column, it's all there. (laughs) Linda, thank you so much. Don't forget to read our column this week. It's delicious, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks so much. That's pretty fascinating stuff. You know, while we're on all things culture, style and influences, I would dare say one of the most influential uh, films of the last... mm, 25, 30 years, at least for women and feminism, is a little movie called Thelma and Louise, right? Love it. What I love is we have a very fun profile this week by Kate Dwyer, where she sits down with Gina Davis, uh, who has her new book out, which is called Dying of Politeness. The fun thing about this is Kate Dwyer talks to her about, you know, the memification of Thelma and Louise and how it's become this touchstone for women and in, in, in business and society. Lo and behold, Gina Davis is like, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about this. Right? Very funny. Very funny. Love this story. Yeah. All right. Before we go off into this most excellent of weekends, or at least we hope it's excellent for all of you, Michael, anything to recommend? I do. First, if you're in the tri-state area, I'm going to tip you off to what might be our favorite undiscovered Italian restaurant. Alan Richman has written about it this week, and it's called Materia. And it's hidden in a little borough in Connecticut called Bantam. As Alan writes, it's the kind of restaurant that you used to discover on the back roads of France or Italy, and then find out they were actually secret Michelin one stars. He says Materia, presided over by David Stasi, who comes from La Bernadette in New York City, is one of those places. And, as he tells us, be sure to go on Tuesday so you can get the Bronzino baked in salt. It's a great Italian restaurant waiting to be discovered. Obviously, I recommend you call ahead. 
And my second tip is on Hulu, and it's all about season three of Rami, the comedy starring Rami Youssef. Youssef won an Emmy for his performance a couple of years ago for his debut season, and season three just dropped a week or so ago, and I think it might be the best yet. The show, for those of you who don't know, details his life as the Egyptian-American millennial son of an immigrant Muslim family in New Jersey who's trying to navigate life, a career, love, and his faith, or lack thereof. This might be, I think, one of the best written shows on TV. It's a comedy that spares no one. It's smart and insightful. And if you haven't watched the first two, catch up now, especially for the great performance by Mahershala Ali in a guest role in season two. It's Rami, and it is on Hulu. And you, Ashley? Oh, there's a marvelous new movie out, Michael, by the Swedish director Ruben Ostlund. Uh, You probably know him best for Force Majeure, his 2014 breakout film that featured a ski holiday gone terribly, terribly wrong. This is his first English language film. It is called Triangle of Sadness. It's in theaters now in limited release, and it is wicked and funny. It takes place, of all things, on a cruise ship. It stars a gorgeous couple named Kara and Yaya, and their relationship is not perfect, and things get complicated, and of course, they are on a cruise ship, and they have to contend with the rest of the world. It reminded me in some ways, not in every way, but of, I think, one of the best things ever written about a cruise ship, which was an essay by David Foster Wallace called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, published in 1997. So either reread that essay or go see this film probably do both. I think you'll really enjoy them because this guy is wickedly funny, wicked being the uh, key word. It is called Triangle of Sadness and it is in limited release now in theaters and it should be on streaming very, very soon. Wonderful. Okay. You and I are not a triangle of sadness. We're a binary star of joy. Thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.